Hi, my name is Brian and I'm the pastor of Vision at Holy City Church. I'm glad that you found our online sermon resources and I pray that the Lord would use them to strengthen your faith. I would exhort you not to use our online sermon resources as a substitute for regular involvement in your own local church. That being said, I pray that our teaching resources would be helpful to you and conform you even more into the image of Christ. Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 18. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him for but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things were made, exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Uh, about three weeks ago, shift manager at a Nashville, Tennessee McDonald's called the police requesting a welfare check at the house of a teenage employee of the restaurant. Uh, the minor boy, teen boy, had on previous occasions come to work with clear signs of physical abuse. Upon their arrival at the teen's house to perform the welfare check, officers reportedly found the teen visibly shaken with bruises and cuts. They said he was trembling with lumps on his face and appeared to be, quote, cut haphazardly. According to a local Nashville news station, the teen victim told officers his mother, brother, and father repeatedly punched him and spat in his face. Arrest records show his mother then took a knife and scratched the back of his right hand with it. Uh, the boy's crime was converting to Christianity. Apparently, the teenage victim had been asking his neighbor about the neighbor's church and his Christian faith. It also appears that the assistant general manager of the McDonald's, where the boy worked, was also herself a Christian. 
At some point, the boy repented and believed on Christ. And the boy's Muslim parents and brother were furious when they found out about his conversion, demanding that the teen boy renounce Jesus and identify as a Muslim. In fact, the family opposed the teen's new Christian faith so much that at one point they kicked and beat the boy until he was unconscious. The boy's mother put a knife to his throat, threatening him that if he didn't deny Jesus, she was going to kill him. The boy's 29-year-old brother threatened to shoot and kill him. And despite all the threats and abuse, the teen boy refused to deny Jesus. As a result, his parents and brother shamed him by spitting on him and assaulted him with their fist and a knife. Thankfully, the police arrived on the scene shortly after this most recent assault, arrested the parents and brother. The teen victim is now in the custody of a Christian foster care family. The boy's earthly family may be ashamed to call him son and brother, but our Heavenly Father is not ashamed to call a Christian teenager a son, nor is Jesus ashamed to call him brother. In Hebrews 2, 5-18, the author teaches us that Christians have been welcomed into God's family through the work of Christ. As a result, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, particularly in the midst of suffering for his namesake. As our forerunner in the faith, Jesus calls us to follow his footsteps in obedient and faith-filled suffering for the sake of the gospel. So three points this morning if you're keeping notes. The first... Follow your sanctifier brother, sanctifier dash brother, follow your sanctifier brother, Jesus, through suffering. Follow your sanctifier brother, Jesus, through suffering. We'll be looking at verses 11 to 13 in particular. Follow your sanctifier brother, Jesus, through suffering. Second... Trust the incarnate Son's victory, not Satan's lies. Trust the incarnate Son's victory, not Satan's lies. We'll be looking particularly at verses 14 to 16. That second point. Trust the incarnate Son's victory, not Satan's lies. Rejoice that the Son of God is your representative substitute. Point number three, rejoice that the Son of God is your representative substitute. That's another dash word. Rejoice that the Son of God is your representative substitute. Be looking at verses 17 and 18. So again, our context. Author of Hebrews is writing to Jewish Christians. Christians who have been converted, but are Jewish in their cultural identity, ethnicity. These Christians, these Jewish Christians, are suffering for the sake of Jesus to such a degree that they're genuinely tempted to go back to Old Covenant Judaism, because the Jews themselves aren't suffering in Rome, at least at this time. So these Jewish Christians are extremely tempted to deny Jesus, go back to Judaism, 
And thus far, the author has spent Hebrews 1 and 2 showing us the absolute superiority of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, over all things, in particular, angels. Now, why compare the Son of God to angels? Because the Mosaic Covenant was given to Moses and Israel at Sinai through the mediation of angels. Angels served as mediators of the Old Covenant to Israel. So, this Old Covenant demanded swift and just retribution against Israelites who disobeyed it. These Jewish Christians would have understood this. And the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, if the Son is greater than angels, and angels mediated this Old Covenant that demanded swift retribution if you disobeyed it, how do you think that you will escape such a great salvation and a terrible judgment if you deny the Son and His new covenant and run away from it? The better new covenant of the superior Son is the only true hope for the world. So there's no going back to an old covenant that it has itself become obsolete. Therefore, the author argues, Christian, don't drift away. Don't forsake the Son who bought you. This Son is himself the true man, the last Adam, the greater David. He looks at Psalm 8 to help us understand that the Son of God was for a little while made lower than the angels through his incarnation, through the Son becoming a man, taking upon himself a human nature. So this promised Son of Adam and David, Jesus Christ, has brought to fulfillment the prophetic words of David's Psalm 8. He look, we looked at that in Hebrews 2, 5 to 9. And we saw last week that it was fitting, in verse 10 of chapter 2, that God should make Jesus the founder, the forerunner, the champion of our faith, perfect through suffering, and that Jesus' suffering would be the means by which God would bring many sons and daughters to glory. You'll remember that the author's use of perfect here because it, it, it might seem a little weird that, that the author would say that he would make the son perfect. This, this use of perfect here doesn't refer to moral perfection. Jesus didn't grow in moral perfection. He started morally perfect, and the son finished morally perfect. Rather, the author refers to the vocational perfection and completeness of Jesus. He, be, he became perfect vocationally. In other words, Jesus' obedience and suffering, even unto death, qualified him as our high priest, as our mediator, as our perfect representative before God. It is through his suffering and temptations that particularly enabled the Son, the incarnate Son, to help God's people who have likewise suffered and are tempted. So in God perfecting him as our high priest, this suffering is the means by which God has consecrated Jesus for high priestly service on our behalf, just like Levitical priests were consecrated for priestly service in the Old Covenant. But unlike those Old Covenant priests, the Son was not consecrated through cleansing and sacrifices for himself. Jesus didn't need any sacrifices on behalf of himself. Rather, he himself is the sacrifice on behalf of his people. 
What Jesus had to do was to suffer as a perfect man on our behalf. The representation we have in Jesus is one of unmatched glory and immeasurable grace. Which brings us to the first point. Follow your sanctifier brother, Jesus Christ, through suffering. As we look at verses 11 to 12, we see further reason for Christ's perfection through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. It's interesting here to note that the author of Hebrews describes Jesus as our sanctifier. That's generally something that is uh, described of the Spirit. But the author of Hebrews is going to describe Jesus as our sanctifier multiple times throughout his letter. And what the author is emphasizing is the priestly work of Jesus Christ. Through his representation and mediation as our high priest, Jesus is the means of our sanctification, our growing in holiness and becoming more like the Lord. We are holy before God because of Jesus. We are being made more holy in this life because of Jesus. And the work of the Son was and continues to be applied to our lives in terms of both positional and progressive sanctification. What, what do I mean by that? Positionally, you are a saint, beloved. That's what the scriptures refer to you, saint. Now, we might lose that a little bit because of our Roman Catholic uh, interactions and history of the past several hundred years. But in the scriptures, and particularly in the New Testament, the word for saint is holy one. Holy one or saint. You are a holy one. Like, it's done. That's who you are. You aren't part holy and part unholy. No, you are a holy one. That's who you are positionally. That's what Jesus has won for you. That's what he's done for you as your high priest. But he is also making you more holy. That's this aspect of progressive sanctification. You're becoming progressively over time more and more like Jesus. A big part of you living rightly in this world, and why I want to harp on this, a big part of you living rightly in this world is knowing who you are because your identity informs your actions. Okay? Now, I've, I've got a boxer. His name's Hobbs. He's about 80, 85 pounds. He's a big dog. He's great. But I don't expect my boxer, I don't expect Hobbs, to live like a human. Okay? In fact, if we were eating at the dinner table and all of a sudden I saw a chair being dragged up to it and then Hobbs getting up and then sitting on his haunches and expecting a plate to be given to him like one of my children, I would be really impressed, but I would also be deeply troubled. He is not a human. I don't expect him to live like a human. 
I expect him to live like a dog because his identity is that of a dog. And don't confuse your identity, beloved. You're a holy one. To live like an unholy one is odd. You're living contrary to who you are. You're no longer a totally depraved sinner. You were. You're not anymore. The power of sin has been broken in your life. You're no longer an Adam. You're in Christ. You aren't a slave to sin. You aren't powerless before temptations to sin. Why? Because you're awesome? I know most of you. Let me just tell you, you're not. Okay? Neither am I. Not because we're awesome, but because of Christ. You're weak, and you're frail, and you're totally dependent upon the Son of God to sanctify you and make you more holy. And that's exactly what the incarnate Son is doing in the life of every believer, regardless of how ugly it looks, how slow it might feel like it's taking, Jesus' identity is that of he who sanctifies. And your identity, beloved, is those who are sanctified. That's the process. That's your identity. And that process was initiated by Jesus. It was his idea. Jesus is presently governing your sanctification. Jesus will be the one to complete your sanctification. Because our Savior has defeated sin and death and is presently seated at the right hand of the Father. So maybe you, this morning, maybe you feel like you're falling apart. Maybe, you know, you came in on two wheels into the parking lot and you're all frazzled. And understand, your identity is that of a saint. You are the one who is being sanctified by the one who sanctifies. Maybe you feel like you're falling apart. I understand the feeling. But more important than your feelings about yourself, and more, impo- more important than my ability to commiserate or sympathize with you, is that Jesus stands in solidarity with you before the Father. The Son of God is greater than your heart. He sympathizes with you as your perfect, loving, and effectual high priest. So why do I speak of Solidarity. Because the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus and us, his people, all have one source, or the Greek is literally, are all of one. What does that mean? Jesus, our sanctifier, and we who are being sanctified, share both the same heavenly Father and the same human nature. By taking upon a full human nature, the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ, shares in the same human nature that you and I do, yet without sin. We must be careful when we read the Gospels. This, this is a common temptation for us. We must be careful when we read the Gospels that we don't so emphasize the divinity of the Son. He is totally God, 100%. But we cannot so emphasize the divinity of the incarnate Son that we then divinize His humanity. We can't make His humanity something other 
than true humanity. The incarnate Son isn't a blending of divine and human natures. Okay, that's heretical. If you believe that, reject it. He's not Hercules. He's not a demigod. Okay, in the incarnation, the Son didn't subtract or divide his divine nature to become a man. He added to himself a true and full human nature. He's fully God and he's fully man. One person, two distinct natures. He's 100% God, 100% man all the time. Now, if that blows your mind, welcome to the club. But he is always acting as a united person through two distinct natures. So that's really important for us because we need a true and perfect human. We don't need a demigod. We don't need a, a superman to stand with us. We need a perfect man, a true man to stand with us and for us before God. We need a better Adam. We, didn't, we need an Adam who is perfectly obedient in the face of temptation because our Adam wasn't, and nor are we. We need our advocate to be Adam's promised son who God promised will crush the head of the serpent and reconcile us to God. We, we have a Savior who is so close to us in terms of our union with Him that we have become a part of the same family of God by virtue of His work. So, do you know, Saint, the author of Hebrews is going to emphasize this, particularly in verses 12 and 13. Did you know that Jesus Christ is your elder brother? That's your relationship to Jesus. He is your brother. Do you live as someone who really knows that Jesus is your perfectly loving, perfectly holy, perfectly gentle, perfectly patient, perfectly gracious, perfectly merciful, and perfectly just older brother? Did you know that because you are a son or daughter of God and because Jesus completely understands what it is to be a human, the Son of God is not ashamed to call you brother or sister? In spite of all of your sin, in spite of whatever happened this week, this past month, this past year, in spite of all of your rebellion, in spite of all of your secret and hidden faults, in spite of the countless number of times that you failed him, in spite of the fact that your sins nailed him to the cross, in spite of it all, he knows it all, he is not ashamed to call you brother or sister. Jesus took the initiative to save you, to transform you, to make you his own. He has changed you forever. He has brought you into God's family, a family you can never lose. Your acceptance before God, your adoption into God's family, your forgiveness and righteous standing, your identity, all of it has been won by your brother, Christ Jesus, who is not ashamed to call you brother or sister. I have done a lot of things of which I am ashamed. And Jesus is not ashamed to call me brother. The incarnate Son of God understands your human weaknesses. Jesus had human weaknesses. He understands your human limitations. He had human limitations. 
He understands your fatigue. He himself got tired. He understands your ignorance. He himself was ignorant of some things, and he grew in wisdom and stature. Not only does the Son of God know all of these realities by virtue of his divine omniscience, his all-knowingness, but he understands them, he knows them experientially as the incarnate Son, your brother in the faith, your fellow human, your perfect representative before God, the transcendent God who is highly exalted and reigns over all the universe, isn't ashamed to call you lowly saint, brother, or sister. We don't merit familial relations, but the Son has won us and won those relations for us through his shed blood, his broken body, his empty tomb. Jesus is just that good, that kind, that gracious to us. The incarnate Son is not ashamed, the author argues, but rather Jesus speaks to God for us and speaks to us for God. Let me say that again. Jesus speaks to God for us, and Jesus speaks to us for God. Look at verse 12. Author of Hebrews quotes Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Author of Hebrews writes that the Son, the incarnate Son, is the ultimate author of Psalm 22. It's really his prayer. It's ultimately his prayer. The same Psalm 22 that Jesus quotes on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 1 of Psalm 22. This Davidic psalm begins with King David feeling as though the Lord has forsaken him in the midst of intense suffering. But as the psalm goes on, and by verse 22, there is a shift to hope and praise at God's deliverance. This Davidic psalm begins with questioning God's presence and suffering, but then turns to boldly proclaim, proclaiming the mercies of God and praising God's faithfulness to God's covenant people. And, and knowing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic kingship and the Davidic promises that he himself is the greater David. David's promised son from 2 Samuel 7. We understand that Jesus is the true and final speaker of Psalm 22. Jesus was forsaken on the cross under God's wrath so that his brothers and sisters might never be forsaken. You have never been nor will you ever be forsaken. You will never experience God's wrath. The Son was perfected as our high priest, particularly through this kind of suffering. He, he can genuinely pray, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was. On the cross, according to God's plan. We might feel like we have been forsaken, but we have not been. Jesus understands what it means to enter into suffering in this life, to not enjoy that suffering, to question God's presence in that suffering, while firmly and joyfully clinging to faith in God's promises and then proclaiming those promises to his brothers and sisters. 
Jesus is the forerunner of our faith. We, we can't, again, we can't divinize the incarnate Son so much to think that Jesus didn't trust God's promises himself. Jesus had to trust God's promises. He's calling us to follow him in doing the same. In the midst of suffering, Jesus, as the forerunner of our faith, the one who ran before us, we run after him, we do well to imitate him in our own suffering. Suffering is difficult, it's good to pray Psalm 22 in the midst of hardship, but to do so in faith. What does praying Psalm 22 in faith mean? It means praying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then finishing the psalm and knowing that what feels like being forsaken is not true of me. It's not true of you, saint, because Christ was forsaken on your behalf. We only have hope and promises of salvation that will help us to progress through our suffering. Our suffering is purposeful. Your high priest understands the feelings of being forsaken because he actually experienced it. Jesus was actually forsaken by God under his wrath in your place so you would never be forsaken. You will never be forsaken, though you feel like it. But even in the midst of bearing God's wrath, Jesus was doing so in faith, trusting his Father, obeying him in his life and death, anticipating in faith the fulfillment of the Psalm 22 promise, being able on the other side of the grave to proclaim God's promises and his mercies and his salvation plan to the congregation of his brothers and sisters. You. He had you in mind to proclaim to you these promises in the midst of his suffering. Do not see your suffering as something that distracts you from growth or faithfulness to God but rather see suffering as one of God's primary means by which he is making you more like his son, Jesus Christ. Suffering isn't antithetical to Christianity. It's the meat and potatoes. That's what we do. That's what we do well. We generally don't do well when we're not suffering. At the center of our faith is a crucified Savior who trusted the Father's plan, a plan which started with the cross but ended with the crown. Your suffering may crush you, but it won't destroy you. Your suffering is purposeful. It's a means of learning to trust God when everything in your flesh, everything in the world is screaming for you to not trust Him, to run away, to hide, to flee. Trusting God in the midst of suffering, using your suffering to tell your brothers and sisters of God's faithfulness and to praise him for it all in the congregation is following in the very footsteps of Jesus. Don't waste your suffering even as you ask your heavenly Father to bring it to an end. Verse 13, Isaiah, author of Hebrews quotes Isaiah 8, 17 and 18. 
I will put my trust in him. Behold, I and the children God has given me. Interestingly, uh, the author of Hebrews identifies the words of Isaiah with the very words of Jesus. In Isaiah 8, Isaiah is dealing with a faithless and disobedient Davidic king, a coming invasion by the Assyrian army, and a nation of Judah that has largely given itself to unrepentant sin and is hardened against the Lord. Isaiah's ministry, the Lord has told him, has been defined by preaching that no one listens to, teaching that no one understands, prophetic actions that no one perceives. The people of Judah have hard hearts, and a significant part of Isaiah's ministry is to harden the unbelievers in Judah, to prepare them for God's judgment. But in Isaiah 8, in the face of terrible circumstances, God calls Isaiah to trust him, to fear the Lord alone, and to not be swept up in the faithlessness of the people and in an encroaching Assyrian army. In Isaiah's response, I will wait for the Lord. I will hope in him. I will put my trust in him. Behold, I and the children God has given me. I will not only trust you, Lord, but I will call your children to follow me as I trust you in the midst of desperate and scary circumstances, faithless leadership, a conquering enemy army. And what does our Jesus say to God? I will put my trust in you, Father. Behold, I and the brothers and sisters you have given to me. I will trust you in the midst of a scary cross, faithless Jewish leadership, a wicked Roman empire, a demonic enemy bent on destroying me. Jesus trusts the Father. He trusted the Father. And what does our Savior turn and say to us? I I put my trust in the Father. Trust Him with me. I trusted the Father. He, He didn't disappoint. Put your trust in Him also. He will deliver you as He has delivered me. Follow me in suffering because it is the pathway to eternal life. I followed our Father even when the victory wasn't readily seen. I followed our Father by faith even when victory came only after death. Follow me even though you can't yet see victory. Trust me that the victory is coming because I've defeated all of God's enemies, including Satan and the world and death. Which brings us to the second point. Trust the incarnate Son victory, not Satan's lies. In verses 14 to 16, the author continues to lay out the case for the necessity of the incarnation of the Son of God. Okay? He, is, he is giving us the logic of the incarnation. Why did the Son become a man? Since the children share in flesh and blood, therefore he, the Son, himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In order to defeat Satan, the son had to defeat death, because death is the weapon that Satan uses to enslave the world. So to be clear, God doesn't owe Satan anything. Jesus didn't owe Satan anything. Okay? There are a lot of saints in the early church who believe that the atonement was a ransom paid to Satan. They get that from Mark 10.45. I come as a ransom for many. 
The atonement was not a ransom paid to Satan. That's not true. Jesus didn't have to pay anything to Satan himself in order to atone for us. Rather, ever since Genesis 3, Satan has had the power of sin's penalty, that is death, to accuse all of humanity before God of sin. Essentially, as if God could forget, essentially seeking to remind God that humans deserve death, which we do. Okay? You'll remember, Pastor Drew's preaching through Job. The Lord is asking Satan, the accuser, that's his, literally his name, what have you been doing? Again, he knows. Rhetorical question. Walking around the earth, and then he starts to accuse Job. The main problem with most of Satan's accusations against us is that they're often grounded in truth. A lot of what Satan accuses us of is true. Apart from Christ, we do deserve death. We do deserve God's wrath. Apart from Christ, we are slaves to sin. We, we can't do anything other than disobey the Lord. And sin has affected every part of our being apart from God's work through Christ. So it's not just that Satan is a liar. He is, but when he accuses us before the Father, it's often true. Death is what Satan waves over the heads of all people everywhere. All people are enslaved by Satan through the fear of death. Death is inescapable. And Satan, Satan stands prior to Christ at the throne of God, constantly accusing God's people. But then in the Gospels you see Jesus say, I saw Satan fall like lightning from the, from the heavens. And what is he talking about there? Satan, through the work of Christ, has lost his ability to accuse us before the Father. Death comes for us all, and then judgment. In order to defeat Satan, Jesus had to deal with sin and defeat death. John Owen writes, all of Satan's power over death was founded on sin. The obligation of the sinner to death gave Satan his power. If this obligation was removed, Satan's power would also be taken away. So we see Satan fall. Because his power has been taken away. In order to die, and particularly in order to die on our behalf, the Son of God had to become like us in every way. The Son of God, as God, can't die.
In and through his divine nature, the Son can never die and never has. That's contrary to his divine nature. So the author of Hebrews, is, again, is teaching us the logic of the incarnation. In and through his human nature, however, the Son of God as a man can die, and he did die. In the wisdom of God, the way in which the incarnate Son defeats death is through death. In offering himself as a sacrifice to God on our behalf, Jesus put death to death. The penalty for sin has been paid on behalf of the children of Abraham, the people of faith who trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through his death, Jesus has endured the penalty we sinners deserved. Through his resurrection, the Father has vindicated the righteousness of the Son, affirmed his perfect obedience, raised him in the power of the Spirit. King Jesus is the first man of the new creation, never to die again. The Son put death to death. That's why we're sitting here this morning, not watching the Today Show or playing golf or something else. The Son put death to death, and in that we rejoice. We know this in part because we have been regenerated. We've been made spiritually new. Paul talks about this in in 2 Corinthians. We, We are being made and being transformed inwardly even as the outer self is wasting away. Okay? My forehead is getting bigger. Okay? My midsection is getting larger. My memory is getting shorter. Why? Because my outer self is wasting away. I can delay it. I can work out a lot. I can exercise. I do. You should. It's good for you. But I can't stop death. And if the Lord tarries, I'm, I'm going to die. But that's not the fullness of death. Jesus put death to death. While we may still experience physical death, again, assuming that the Lord Jesus doesn't return in our lifetime, we will never experience spiritual death. We will never experience hell. That that is what hell is, spiritual death. Enduring God's wrath forever. At death, the Christian departs this world and is instantly with Christ. Never to be separated again, simply awaiting the resurrection of the dead, where we will be given resurrected, glorified bodies like Christ, which we will enjoy forever in the new creation. Death has been destroyed in part. But we wait for the return of our King Jesus to put death to death with finality. And again, the, the, the logic of the incarnation, Hebrews 2, is in order to experience death on our behalf, the Son had to become a man. He had to take on a human nature. He had to be like us in every way. He had to share in flesh and blood. He had to possess a full human nature. But in defeating death, he has destroyed Satan. Theologians call this Christus Victor. Christ the victor. Christ truly has defeated God's enemies. We wait with expectancy to see the Father put all of his enemies with finality under the Son's feet like a footstool. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be destroyed will be death. Christ has defeated Satan through his shed blood. 
all of the accusations from the devil have been dismissed because Jesus has borne the penalty for our sins on the cross. What is the cry in heaven? I think I preached it last Advent. What is the cry in heaven when the great dragon is defeated by the Son in Revelation 12? Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. What does the blood of the Lamb do? It cleanses you from sin, but it silences the accuser. The blood of Christ silences the accusations of the enemy. The accusations of the enemy against you have been rejected by the Father, not because they aren't true of you in your flesh, but because your sins have been put on the Son, and His blood was shed, and you were covered by that blood. You were covered by the blood of the Lamb, beloved. The blood of King Jesus, the Lamb of God, alone silences the accuser of the brethren. Jesus stands in solidarity with you. He calls you brother, sister. He tells you to call him brother. The Father calls you son or daughter. The Spirit in you cries out to God on your behalf saying, Abba, Father, the blood of the Lamb has won your forgiveness. The accusations of the enemy fall flat because you're hidden in Christ. There remains no wrath. No judgment against your sin. Your sins have been separated from you as far as the east is from the west. If you can measure the distance from the east to the west, then you'll be able to measure how close you are to your, your sins before the Father. You've been made new by the work of the Son. The worst thing that the enemy can do to you is kill the body. Worst thing that the enemy do, can do is to kill your body, which also happens to result in the best thing that can happen to you, and that's, that's to be with Christ. That's why Paul would say, I mean, for me to, me to depart and be with Christ, that, I mean, that's great. That's money. I would prefer that. But God wants me to be here for your sake, so I'll, I'll remain here in the flesh. Jesus has defeated the powers, beloved. The true Davidic king has defeated an enemy far deadlier than Goliath. You have no need to fear Satan or the demonic. Jesus has bound the strong man and won you from slavery. Depression doesn't have the last word. Loss doesn't have the last word. Suffering doesn't have the last word. Last word. Sin doesn't have the last word. Death doesn't have the last word. Jesus had the last word in John 19.30. Tetelestai. It is finished. Your future is secure. Your Savior lives. Your enemies have no, no true power over you. Rejoice in the Lord and the power of His might. I say again, rejoice! Rejoice in the salvation Jesus affords you. Rejoice that you have a representative in Jesus who stands in solidarity with you before God. 
Rejoice that you have an elder brother in Jesus who has stomped the one who bullied you all your life. The son's blood silences the accuser. So what's true of you before God's throne? One of my favorite hymns, second verse. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. Third point. Rejoice that the Son of God is your representative substitute. In order to help the offspring of Abraham, namely you, the children of faith, you saints, in order to defeat Satan and death, the Son had to be made like us in every way in order to be a merciful and faithful high priest before God. Jesus understands what it is to weep, to rejoice, to pray, to sweat, to work, to trust God for his next meal, to suffer to feel loss, to experience betrayal, to be disappointed, to be unappreciated, to be exhausted, to be slandered, to be falsely accused, to be misunderstood, to be rejected, to be hurt, to be be mistreated, to endure heartache, to have a body broken, and to die. Jesus understands all of those things with far greater Degrees of understanding than any of us do. Jesus understands all of these things with greater clarity and depth than any of us. Jesus understands temptation with greater knowledge and experience than any of us because he was tempted and he didn't succumb to temptation and sin. I've said it before. You want a marathon coach, not... One who has only run like three, four, five miles every time they get in a marathon and then they quit. Okay? You don't want that coach. Doesn't matter how dynamic they are. They have never run the fullness of the race. They don't know what it'll feel like in mile 25. You want a marathon coach who has run the full race with endurance and excellence and who won the prize. That's who you want. You want to follow and listen to that guy. Jesus knows what it is to be tempted, and he knows what it is to endure perfectly all the way to the end of it in obedience to the Father. Jesus has endured the the highest and furthest extremes of temptation. Extremes that I'm sure none of us, or at least many of us, have, have never had to endure. He pressed further into temptation than any person in human history, and he did not fail. And that's credited to you by faith. He is a perfect and faithful high priest who represents us before God and who also stands in solidarity with us. He speaks for you, saint. He speaks for you. There is no better word that can be said for you 
than the word of the Son of God. There is no greater standing or righteousness that you can enjoy than the Son standing before God and His righteousness imputed to you by faith alone. We need Jesus as our representative. And praise God, the author of Hebrews makes it really clear. Jesus is our representative before the Father. Amen. But we need more than a representative before God. We need more than just someone to stand with us and for us. Jesus made propitiation for the sins of the people. Verse 17. We also need a substitute. What does propitiation mean? There's been a lot of debate over how to translate this word. The right, the right way to translate it is propitiation. <laughs> but it, it, it certainly means to take away sin. Okay, a lot of people will, will want to translate this word in Hebrews 2.17 as expiation, which means to take away sin. That's certainly true. Propitiation entails that sin is taken away. But propitiation pushes it more. Propitiation entails that sin is taken away, forgiveness is provided by turning God's wrath away from the sinner and onto the sacrifice. Okay? Averting, satisfying God's wrath is very, very unpopular. That's why a lot of translators will want to translate this expiation. Okay? They don't want to talk about God's wrath. The PCUSA wanted the Gettys to change in Christ alone. The lyrics of that great hymn. From till, from till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That, that's the normal, the normal lyrics. Those are the original lyrics. They wanted to change that from till on that cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Why do they want to do that? Because they want to avoid wrath. I don't want to talk about wrath. Shockingly, God's perfect justice being displayed by his pouring out wrath against sinners is deeply unpopular. It's very troubling to unregenerate people. God's, however, God's wrath, however, isn't like human wrath. It's not unhinged. It's not flying off the handle. It's not rage-induced. It's not uncontrolled. That's sinful human wrath. God's wrath is His perfect, controlled, just, loving, righteous response to our moral rebellion, sin, and corruption. And Jesus wasn't this unwilling child standing between you and an unhinged father Enduring cosmic child abuse like some fool pastor in the UK has said. That's a total distortion of Christ's substitutionary work. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, from all eternity made a plan by which he would save filthy, wretch, filthy wretches and sinners like us from the just punishment due us before God. God would himself take the just penalty of our sin, namely his own wrath, and then credit to us his own righteousness as a gift. That's what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit planned before the foundations of the world. That's what they executed in redemptive history. The Son of God came willingly as a man to be your high priest, to speak on your behalf before the Father, to offer himself as your substitute under the penalty of God's wrath against sin. The Father willingly sent his Son 
to save you from sin and death. The Father and Son sent the Spirit to apply the work of the Son to your life so that you might endure to the end. All of this is possible because, verse 17, Jesus made propitiation for the sins of the people, his brothers and sisters, the offspring of Abraham, the new covenant community. When we look at the Old Testament, we clearly see that in order for any sinner to have a relationship with the living God, there must be priesthood and there must be sacrifices. If I'm going to be made right with God, something's got to die in my place because I deserve to die. I can't approach God. I can't come into his presence without something dying in my place. I need a substitute but also need someone designated by God to speak on my behalf, to intercede for me, to pray for me, to acquire God's forgiveness for me. And throughout the Old Testament, there are people and institutions that teach us this reality. But none of these Old Testament people or institutions could actually deliver the goods. See, the high priest, once a year on the Day of Atonement, going in, sprinkling the blood in the Holy of Holies, on the Day of Atonement, killing one goat, putting his hand on the head of the other one, sending it away into the wilderness, this putting his hand, representing identification with the sacrifice. Author of Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats and the Levitical sacrificial system couldn't take away sins. But the blood of the incarnate son shed for us could take away sins because Jesus alone could bear God's wrath in its entirety. Jesus, he who sanctifies, does in fact make his people holy. We are cleansed and made holy before God. But in order for him to sanctify us, he must be an acceptable representative and substitute before God, which requires him to share in our human nature. He must be our perfect priest, he must be our perfect sacrifice, and praise God that he is both. Praise God that Jesus has reconciled us to God through his blood, made us part of God's family through adoption. Through the work of the Son, we former rebels, sinful outcasts, and enemies of God now enjoy a relationship that we had no right to. Sonship with the Father. We have been made sons and daughters by God through the sufferings of the perfected Son who sanctifies us and has made us his brothers and sisters through his death and resurrection. And the reality and propitiation is that God is both the subject and the object of the atonement. What do I mean by that? The primary person is God in this transaction. He is the one for whom the atonement is required, and he is the one by whom the atonement is being completed. He is the object that we need to be satisfied, and he is the one doing the satisfying himself. He is the one taking the initiative to save us because of his own righteous requirements. That's what Paul teaches in Romans 3, 21 to 26. God, as the subject of the atonement, is the one who has taken the initiative to redeem us and has accomplished our redemption through Christ's death and resurrection. God, as the object of the atonement, is the one whose justice must be executed and satisfied. Beloved, there is not a... Hear me. Hear me on this. 
as you look at your heavenly Father and His disposition towards you, think of your high priest Jesus who offered Himself as a perfect substitute on your behalf. What does that mean? There is not a single ounce of God's wrath left for you. So don't be timid. Go into the throne room of grace. The author of Hebrews says, be confident. Confidently enter into the throne room of grace. Why? Not because you're awesome, but because Jesus has exhausted God's wrath. And He has given you God's favor through His work alone. He has exhausted all of God's wrath. The Son is the perfect penal substitute on our behalf, making propitiation for sins. And, and His substitution as the penalty, taking the penalty for us, that is the basis and the foundation from which all of the beautiful other aspects of the atonement flow out of. Why is Christ the victor? Because He has dealt with God's wrath. Why is He our moral example? Because He has dealt with God's wrath. He has dealt with our primary problem, namely, God standing opposed to us because we are sinful rebels. All right, so I told Brian I'd give him a, I'd give him a shout out so last week. So Brian told me about an illustration a teacher gave him that's, that's always stuck with him. And I told him I, I'd say it because it was helpful to him and hopefully it'll be helpful to you. So we think about propitiation, we think about Jesus' atonement, a bit like the bounty quicker picker-upper. Okay, all right, you remember those commercials? I think they still have them. It's like the bounty commercials and then the awful paper towel commercials, right? And they spill, oh no, and then they grab the wrong paper towels and it's like, oh, it doesn't do it. But they slap away the other paper towels and whew, bounty, quicker picker-upper. And you know how the bounty paper towels, compared to others in the commercials, soak up all the mess. No mess left. Okay? Jesus soaked up all of God's wrath. There, there is none left. None remaining against you. Not only is there no wrath against you, but Jesus has turned that wrath into favor. God's wrath has not only been averted, but now God eternally smiles upon you in Christ. God's disposition towards His children now because of Christ is only one of favor. Even in the midst of discipline, which is painful. God disciplines us because He loves us. There is no more condemnation, no more wrath, no more punishment from God against those who are in Christ. Why? Because Jesus has made propitiation for the sins of His people. He has taken God's wrath, given us God's favor, defeated death, defeated the power of Satan, silenced His accusations. He stands in solidarity with us. He speaks to God on our behalf. He's credited us with his own righteousness. He calls us brothers. He's the means by which we've been adopted into God's family. His incarnation, his struggles against suffering, temptations in his life and ministry, his suffering of death under God's wrath, his exaltation, his glorification, all vital components of him being our high priest. It is precisely by these hard experiences that he is qualified to be our high priest before the Father. What better salvation is there? What greater Savior is there than King Jesus? In the midst of your suffering, know that your Savior has gone before you 
He understands your temptations with far greater depth than you do. He has saved you from sin, death, and God's wrath, and he speaks on your behalf. And may God help us to love and to trust our great high priest as we follow him in suffering for his namesake.